When we think about the past, we can imagine life going backwards, you know, as extrapolating out yesterday, the day after, the day after, the day after. Imagine yourself going back on the timeline and you can, for the most part, get a feel for what life was like, say, as far back as colonial America. Go back even further, even the Roman Empire, perhaps even Israel in the days of King David. You can go back on the timeline until you reach two impasses. For two events so dramatically altered our planet that all assumptions of life beforehand become a blur. First is the flood of Noah. Prior to the flood, it had never rained on the earth. The earth was shrouded in vapor and watered by dew. There was no fear between mankind and the animals. Our planet was a very, very different place before the flood. But you can go back even further until you reach another impasse. Go back to the fall of mankind. It's hard to imagine what life was like before the fall. To imagine a, a perfect world. Work was no sweat. Childbirth was pain-free. Sin had not yet spoiled the paradise of God's original creation. But today, we're not going backwards. We're thinking forwards. We're looking into the future. And again, our conjectures about the future will be fairly accurate until we reach two impasses. The first is the millennial kingdom. We can imagine life tomorrow or next year or next 10 years or even the next 100 years. But try to imagine what life will be like when Jesus reigns on planet earth, when he rights all wrongs, when he repairs all that sin is damaged. Jesus was going to turn this jungle into a paradise, into a garden. Last week, we tried to imagine what life will be like in the kingdom age. But here's another impasse as we look forward. What happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ? Well, here in Revelation 21 and 22, God takes John and us to the ultimate brink. He takes us to that moment when time fades into eternity. God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And at points, as John receives this revelation, he puts down his pen. He becomes so in awe of the wonders of eternity that he no longer writes. He doesn't know what to think. And today, we too are going to get a glimpse of eternity, and I hope it captures our hearts as well. Well, Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse, verse 1. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There is coming a day when the physical universe that we know will be no more. Here the Bible teaches the non-eternity of matter. Matter had a beginning and it will have an end. God created matter and what he creates he can uncreate or he can eliminate. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 predicts the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. At the end of chapter 20, we read where God's great white throne appears. 
and suddenly all that's material flees away. You recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's word is forever. But all that we can see and all that we can touch will go out in a blaze of God's glory. Realize this earth is a no deposit, no return planet. It won't be recycled. The eternal state will consist of a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it may resemble the old earth in aspects, but qualitatively, it will be very, very different. In Isaiah 65, verse 17, when God speaks of eternity, he says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. The Hebrew word Isaiah uses for create is bara. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 of the original creation. It means to create out of nothing. In the final future, God won't recycle the elements of his first creation. Rather, he'll create again something new, something better. And you'll ultimately notice the differences between the before and after. It, it will hit you immediately. You know, the differences between the old creation and the new creation. In fact, verse 1 tells us, also there was no more sea. Today, 70% of the earth's surface is ocean. Our ecosystem depends on the sea for weather and for water. But in the new earth, a sea won't be necessary. You know, in the Bible, the sea is always sinister. It's a symbol for evil. In Revelation 13, the beast rises out of the sea. In the new creation, this reminder of evil will be eliminated. And then verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, <coughs> prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In John 14, verse 2, just before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And we can assume that's what he's been doing over the last 2,000 years, preparing us a place. Nazareth's carpenter has been constructing our heavenly digs. And here John sees it. He sees it as a beautiful bride, this new Jerusalem. This is what today we call heaven. You know, scripturally speaking, there are actually three heavens. There's the first heaven. That's the blue sky. That's the atmosphere surrounding our earth. The second heaven is the night sky, or what we would call outer space. But the third heaven is God's eternal throne. This is where our friends and loved ones who died knowing Jesus now reside. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes of his experience, he was caught up to the third heaven. Now here, John sees this third heaven coming to earth. You all want to go to heaven. Well, here heaven is coming to earth. And John calls it the new Jerusalem. This is God's capital. This is his throne. Apparently, Jesus was, is one day going to reign over God's creation from the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And when John sees this city, it reminds him of a bride on her wedding day. 
She appears decked out in all her splendor. She's the object of her husband's desires. You know, whenever I officiate a wedding, I always tell the groom to kind of scoot over right into the middle of the aisle so he can see his bride walking down the aisle. I don't want anything to obscure his vision. I tell him that she'll never look as pretty as she looks on her wedding day. You know, I've met some ugly women. (laughs) But I've never met an ugly bride. Never. All brides end up gorgeous, I promise. And this will be our reaction to heaven. It'll dwarf all our expectations. Hey, don't ever think you'll be homesick for earth when you're in heaven. Heaven will be infinitely greater. It's true, this world is an awe-inspiring place. There are vistas so beautiful, they take your breath away. But Jesus created this planet in just six days. Imagine what he's creating given 2,000 years. Well, a voice sounds in verse 3. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people God himself will be with them and be their God. You've heard of the streets of gold and the pearly gates, but heaven's chief attraction is God himself. See, it's Jesus that will make heaven so heavenly. And here's what life in heaven will be like, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, For the former things have passed away. What a day that'll be. Yet in the millennial kingdom, death will be rare, yet it will still exist. Here, though, death is done. In the eternal state, there'll be no undertakers, no grave diggers, no cemeteries. Reminds me of a gravestone in Virginia. It marks the remains of a woman named Margaret Daniels. Below it, it reads, she always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. Sin created a fallen world that makes us vulnerable to sickness and pain and death. But in Revelation 21, sin is no more. Now its symptoms can be treated. Grief goes. Tears dry. You know, when you came into this world, the first sound you made was a cry. Do you remember it? You cried right off the bat. And to a degree, that's what we have been doing ever since. We've been crying our way through life. But one day, Jesus will end our sorrows, and he'll dry our tears. There's no crying in heaven. And then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. The Greek word translated new, it means not, it's new not necessarily in terms of time, but in terms of kind or quality. All things will be new and fresh and alive. You know, one of life's huge disappointments is its diminishing returns. Things lose their luster. Thrills grow mundane over time. You know, I've met folks who came up to me and said, Oh, Pastor Sandy, hi, I'm from Hawaii. I said, you're from Hawaii? Why did you leave? They got tired of Hawaii. They got bored with paradise. I mean, how fickle can a person be? But after a million years, there'll be nothing boring about heaven. It'll always feel new. 
Heaven will always have that new car smell. And, John, and he said to John, write. Now, why did he tell John to write? He's already writing. Well, apparently, John had stopped writing. He had become so in awe with these wonders that he's seeing that he's laid down his pen. He's forgotten the task at hand. And Jesus has to tell him, John, write. For these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. Same words Jesus used on the cross. It is finished. The heavy lifting came at Calvary. Now all that was paid for is acquired. And Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. They are the A to Z. And in essence, all of life begins and ends with Jesus. And he promises I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Jesus hydrates our thirsty soul. He overcomes what drags us down. And yet those who succumb to sin, he leaves outside this holy city. And he goes on to list those who are left outside. Verse 8, but the cowardly. Notice this now. Cowardice is not just a weakness. It's a sin. There are no excuses for cowardice if Jesus makes us overcomers. Faith is courageous. He also mentions unbelieving and abominable. The word there speaks of a repulsive act. You know, I researched this and I made a list of all that the law of Moses calls an abomination regarding God's distinctions between clean and unclean or disregarding those distinctions was an abomination. Giving God an offering from ill-gotten gain was called abominable. Leviticus 18, 22 and 20 verse 13 describe homosexual practices as an abomination to God. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 adds cross-dressing to that category. Idolatry was also abominable, as was offering God a blemished sacrifice, or literally less than your best, which means that if you've ever been guilty of giving God your leftovers, the leftovers of your time or of your money, and regrettably I have, Beware of pointing your finger at other people's abominations. Take care of your own abominables first, and then you can worry about somebody else's abominations. The list goes on. Murderers, sexual, immoral, sorcerers. The word sorcerers is the word pharmakia, from which we get the word pharmacy. It refers to the use of illicit drugs. Also, idolaters and all liars. These are people that will be left out of the holy city. See, God loves truth. Why would he want to spend eternity with a habitual liar? Everyone on this list, we're told, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, let me clarify. There will be people in heaven who lied and who did drugs, and who were homosexuals, 
and who acted cowardly and who slept around, but they repented. When given the opportunity, they changed. They were willing to live differently, not perfectly, but differently. Those excluded from heaven were those who didn't repent. They were assigned the lake of fire. These were those who ignored or who resisted the changes that Jesus wanted to work in their lives. There's forgiveness for those who repent. Those that are left out are the unrepentant. And then verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. This was a spectacular sight. John is repositioned on a mountain where he can get a panoramic view of heaven. And he sees heaven as this hustling, bustling, great city. You know, here on earth, we sometimes begrudge city life. Cities become the incubator for all that's bad in the world. Crime and poverty and congestion and noise and pollution. We romanticize moving out to the pristine countryside. But apparently, God likes the city. Cities bring people together. They spawn culture and creativity. New ideas bubble up in the city. There's excitement on the streets. And this is what heaven will be like. Don't think of heaven as a bank of fluffy, puffy, cumulus clouds. For all eternity, we'll live in a city that never sleeps. You and I were not created for the isolation of the country. God designed us for community, for the buzz of city life. We'll see later aspects of the new Jerusalem are more like a garden. Heaven is a city with lots of green space, but God's garden is in the midst of a city. Well, John sees this holy city descending out of heaven. What happens to it after its descent, he doesn't say. Does it hover between heaven and earth as sort of a celestial satellite? Does it take a parallel orbit to the new earth? Does the new earth even have an orbit? We know this new earth doesn't revolve around the sun. For in verse 23, there is no sun. The lamb is its light. In eternity, we know everything revolves around Jesus. One of the certainties we can glean from this picture of the city is its beauty and its color. Verse 11 tells us, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Heaven is like a gemstone. Think of a twinkling diamond on the black cloth of a huge canvas. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. Like ancient cities, heaven has a wall and it has gates and it has a foundation. In verse 13, on the gates... There were names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. It's fitting the 12 gates all bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Hebrews were the gate through which the world entered God's family. 
He says, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Remember, at his first coming, Jesus chose 12 apostles who worked miracles and who wrote inspired scripture. These 12 apostles were foundational to God's plan. No wonder their names are now written on heaven's foundation. And then verse 15, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. 12,000 furlongs. That's the equivalent of 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. Now imagine a city with base dimensions of 1,500 miles square. This is a huge city. As a matter of fact, if you were to fix the upper right-hand corner at Boston, Massachusetts, and lay out 1,500 miles square, the four corners of the city would be Boston, Calgary, Canada, Phoenix, Arizona, and Miami, Florida. The New Jerusalem would cover three-quarters of the United States, two-and-a-quarter million square miles. The most mind-boggling dimension, though, is the height of the city. It's 1,500 miles high as well. Currently, 99% of the Earth's atmosphere is within 100 kilometers or 62 miles of the Earth's surface. This means that if the New Jerusalem set on the old earth, it would extend 1,400 miles into space. The size of the city would be a tad smaller than our moon. Imagine, too, its 3D occupancy. Its residents are not just on the ground floor, but they're scattered throughout the entire structure, which increases the living space to 3 billion square miles. Plenty of room for all the redeemed from all the ages. I read a fun estimate, say 100 billion humans have lived throughout time, and say 20% were saved. If each person gets an equal plot in the New Jerusalem, we'll all have about 75 acres. That'd be a pretty good spread, wouldn't it? Heaven has plenty of real estate to back up God's promise, whosoever will may come. Now, we know the city's dimensions, but what we don't know is its shape. Some teachers believe the New Jerusalem is in the shape of a dome or in the shape of a sphere. Others believe it's in the shape of a cube. The Holy of Holies in the tabernacle was a cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. A more provocative suggestion is that it's in a pyramid shape. You know, ancient pyramids were associated with death and the afterlife. It could be that the idea of a pyramid was a memory of heaven left over in the mind of fallen men. Verse 17 picks it up. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits at 18 inches per cubit. That's 216 feet. He says, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel, whether this is 216 feet thick or high is unclear. He says the construction of its wall was of jasper. The word means a speckled stone. 
And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The gold was so pure, it was transparent. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And note the colors here. The colors we'll see in heaven. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire, which was a blue. The third, chalcedony, or an aqua color. The fourth, emerald, or bright green. The fifth, sardonyx, a brownish red. The sixth, sardius, which was a deep blood red. The seventh, chrysolite, which was a greenish yellow. The eighth, beryl, or yellow. The ninth, topaz, or reddish gold. The tenth, chrysopros, which was an apple green. The eleventh, jacinth, or a burnt orange. And the twelfth was amethyst, or a purple. I believe these stones were the same stones that appeared in the breastplate of the Jewish high priest. And for all eternity, they'll remind us of Jesus' priestly ministry how he died in our place, and now how he intercedes for us. One thing is for sure, the heavenly city is a kaleidoscope of sparkle and shine and color. It will stimulate our senses forever. And then verse 21 is interesting. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And here we find the pearly gates. You know, the pearl is the only gem that's not a mineral. It starts as a speck of sand that lands in the belly on the belly of an oyster. And it begins as an irritation. Secretions from the oyster crystallize around that little speck of sand. And the process eventually forms a beautiful pearl. This makes it fitting that the entranceways into the New Jerusalem are pearls. For it's through the sufferings of our Lord Jesus that God made a way for us to be forgiven. And it's through life's irritations. It's through the sufferings we go through that God matures our faith. See, for all eternity, every time you pass in or out of those pearly gates, you'll thank God for the irritations and the sufferings of this life. He says, and the street of the city. And notice it's not streets, plural, but it's street, singular. Unlike earthly cities, heaven isn't a maze of arteries. or I mean, there's no spaghetti junctions in heaven. There's only one way to God, and there's only one street. And John says it's made of pure gold like transparent glass. You know, on earth, gold is highly valued. But in heaven, not so much. It's used as asphalt. Grace and mercy and peace and patience, spiritual commodities are the real treasures in heaven. And then verse 22 is interesting. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This is odd. No temple in heaven. You know, in the former Jerusalem, the Jewish temple was the city's chief attraction. On earth, the earthly Jerusalem, the temple towered over the city's skyline. In the Old Testament, it was the one place on earth where you could meet God. 
You worshiped and you offered sacrifice and you took vows and you celebrated feast days and you performed rituals all at the temple. It was the epitome of religion. And this is exactly why it no longer exists. The absence of the temple means that God has put an end to religion. See, God tolerated Jewish religion for a time to teach us spiritual lessons. But we fixated on the rules rather than the ruler. We fixated on the law rather than on love. God desires a love relationship with his people, not religious obligation. Thus, in the end, there will be no temple. God will put an end to religion. It will all be about relationship with him. And then verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. The radiance and the brilliance of Jesus will give off all the light and warmth we need. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Neither night or darkness exists in heaven, which is good news for your kids. No more bedtime. Resurrected bodies won't require sleep. And then verse 26, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. The eternal city will never be soiled by sin again. The new Jerusalem will be inhabited by only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so I ask you, are you trusting in the Lamb? Are you leaning on the forgiveness and righteousness that's found in Christ? Is your name written in his book? Now in Revelation 22, John walks us inside the walls through the city's gates and there we find a garden, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Here's a river, a throne, a street, and a tree. Now, like all cities, heaven has a main street. And John here takes us cruising down the main drag in the New Jerusalem. And there's a river splashing up in the middle of this street. Once I had the opportunity to go and speak to a church in San Antonio, Texas, Kathy went with me, and when it was done, we took a few days, and we went down to the Riverwalk. San Antonio has a Riverwalk. There's a river that runs through downtown. There's a walkway on either bank of the river. There's a, a place where you can stroll along and enjoy the Riverwalk. Now, trust me, heaven's a lot nicer than Texas. But heaven, too, has a Riverwalk. You know, throughout the Bible, in Psalm 1, in Psalm 46, in John 7, God is viewed as a river of refreshment flowing through our lives. And in heaven, we'll literally drink from his river of life. 
And notice this river, it flows out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. For all eternity we'll remind, be reminded that all that's good flows not from us, but it flows to us from God. And on either side of the river of life, John sees a tree. Now, perhaps it's one tree growing on both banks of this river, and the water runs through the bark of the tree, the center of the trunk of the tree. Or the original language could indicate that there are multiple trees. Maybe it's a row of trees on either side of the river. But Main Street in heaven affords a welcome sight. You remember Adam and Eve were barred from the tree of life. After they sinned, God dispatched an armed angel to guard the tree, for he didn't want man eating from the tree of life in a fallen state, or he would have lived forever in his sin. But in heaven, now fully redeemed, the man can munch on the tree of life and eat its fruit again. Remember when Jesus spoke to the thief on the cross, you remember he referred to heaven as paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. That word paradise is an old Persian term for a lush, beautiful, protected oasis. This is how you should think of heaven, as an oasis. When you think of heaven, think of Fiji or Tahiti. You know, the original garden was called Eden, which means delights. And this was God's intention for us, eternal delights. That, too, is our ultimate destination. Note a couple of other details here in verses 1 and 2. This tree of life, it bears 12 fruits. Imagine that. One tree yields bananas and mangoes and oranges, multiple fruit. Apparently in heaven there are few limitations and there's unbridled creativity. Notice, too, each tree yielding its fruit every month. Now, is this one tree producing a dozen fruit fruits? Is it one tree yielding a different fruit each month? Is it 12 different trees yielding their fruit? We're not sure. But notice here the inclusion of time. This is interesting. Here's a mention of months. Each tree yields in its month. That's a lunar measurement. What's interesting about that is in chapter 21, verse 23, there is no moon. Yet there's months. Even in eternity, we won't escape time. It'll continue to be a measurement. You know, today, time rules our lives. We're always on the clock. We have limited time. We're pressured by time. But in heaven, we won't be a slave to time. We'll have an endless supply of everything, including time. And notice in heaven, we'll eat. I like this. I mean, why else is there fruit? Surely, we'll be able to eat the fruit. Now, we won't have to eat. There is no hunger in heaven. But we don't always eat out of hunger, do we? Sometimes we eat for enjoyment, or we eat for fellowship, or we eat for relaxation. And if you want to eat in heaven, you can eat. I'm sure angels' food cake is on the menu. As is Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain Barbecue, I guarantee you that's going to be on the menu in heaven. And every food in heaven is zero calorie. Notice verse 2. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
The word healing there can mean health producing. It promotes health. In other words, all the foods in heaven are health foods. And verse 3 answers the question so often asked, what will we do in heaven? And here's where misinformation abounds. I mean, people think all we'll do in heaven is take harp lessons and rake clouds and spend 24-7 singing. Not hardly. Verse 3, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall shall serve him. We'll work in heaven. We'll serve the Lord in heaven. Mankind was created by God for meaningful service. You know, whenever you complete a task and walk away with that satisfaction of a job well done, realize that's a gift from God to you. It's how he made us. And it's a foretaste of one of the joys we'll experience in heaven. You know, today we labor under the curse. There's thorns and thistles around us. We work by the sweat of our brow. Adam was made from the dust of the ground, then told to work that same dust. But as he did, he left something of himself in his work. He never got out of his labor all that he put into it. And this is our plight. Today we labor under the curse, which means all labor becomes hard labor. We're working ourselves to death, literally. But imagine work without the curse. Work that's no sweat. Every day ends with a sense of satisfaction, not frustration. In heaven, you can't wait to get back the next morning and clock in. No one in heaven ever asks for vacation time. They enjoy their job too much. It's incredible. And then verse 4 is heaven's ultimate blessing. They shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Here is the pinnacle of human pursuit. That one day you and I will look into the face of God. Can you imagine that, friends? Nothing testifies to the power of the gospel more than this. That the likes of us will see the face of God. And just as amazing, his name shall be on their foreheads. We'll have God's name on our foreheads. Now, I'm not really into tattoos. Many of you know that. I got my Kathy tattoo. I got my Kathy tattoo, and I, and I got my Calvary Chapel tattoo back here on my calf. But that's all the tattoos I got now. I'm, I'm not really into tattoos. But here's a tat that I won't mind getting. Did you know heaven has a tattoo parlor? It does. Since the beast identifies those that pledge allegiance to him by putting a mark on their forehead, God will also mark his own by putting his name on their foreheads. One day God will brand his children as his own. He'll put his name on our foreheads. That's the one tattoo I won't mind getting. And then verse 5. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Our sun is a massive source of energy. 
And yet in the new heaven and new earth, God's son takes its place. And then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Now in the first verse of Revelation 1, the same phrase was used, must shortly take place. In other words, this is what's next, he's saying. You know, most people read, read Revelation and they focus on the when. When will the end come? But the book's theme is who. What's next is Jesus in all his glory. That's why Jesus cries out in verse 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. See, the glory of Jesus is what's next for us. He says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 8, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. John made the same mistake back in chapter 19. And again, he gets corrected. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. We're not to worship angels. We're certainly not to worship humans. We're to worship God and God alone. John's a slow learner here. God alone is worthy of our worship. And then verse 10 and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. The revelation is to be understood, not discouraged. <clears throat> and pay attention to the ominous warning in verse 12. It's so important. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. For once a person passes from time into eternity, he or she forfeits any possibility for change. This is the most sobering thought about eternity. Once you pass into eternity, there's no longer any possibility for change. In Dante's famous novel, The Inferno, he emblazons the following words over the gates of Hades. It says, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. See, if you're filthy at the time you cross over, you'll be filthy forever. If you're holy when you go from time into eternity, you'll be holy forever. In the Boot Hill Cemetery in Tombstone, Arizona, gravestone reads, Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44, no less, no more. And that will one day be said of you. What you were when you checked out on earth, you'll be for eternity. No less, no more. If you walked with Jesus in this life, You'll walk with him forever. But if you tried to do life on your own in this life, you'll be on your own forever. Jesus will ultimately honor your decision, the choice that you made. Verse 12, Jesus speaks, 
And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. You know, over the millenniums, mankind has had considerable say in matters, but in the end, it's God that gets the last word. He is the beginning, and he is the end. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs, and, and not D-A-W-G-S, <laughs> not Georgia dogs, but dogs. The word dog was actually a slang word for an especially brutish and immoral person. These are the people that are left outside of the holy city. And there are other people outside, sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. See, heaven is a place for people who did life God's way. Those who don't end up on the outside looking in. And then verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The root and offspring of David refers to Jesus' birthright, his genealogy, his first coming. The morning star is the last star seen before the dawning of a new day. It speaks of the rapture, Jesus' second coming. Both comings are in view here. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. And I love this chorus of comes. See, salvation is free, paid for by Jesus. But you have to come. You know, he's not going to track you down and grab you by the scruff of the neck and pull you somewhere you don't want to go. God's not going to chase you down. You've got to step over whatever holds you back and come. It's free, but you've got to come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, since John was the last living of the 12 apostles, he knew the sacred scriptures concluded with him. And so he attaches here a warning, and I believe it applies not just to Revelation, but to the other 65 books that come before. Verse 18, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. In other words, the Bible is not to be edited. It's sufficient, as is, for all that pertains to faith and life. Woe to the person who tampers with the Bible. Plagues get added to the adders. And subtractors get subtracted from the book of life. You don't want to mess with this book. And then verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Three times now we've been told to get ready. John is prepared and he says, even so come Lord Jesus. And then he closes, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.
And let me close by reminding us of Jesus' first miracle. You remember his first miracle? He turned the water into wine. And remember the wedding guests marveled that their host had saved the best until last. He saved the best wine until last. They were blown away by that. But this is what Jesus always does. He saves the best for last. And this is how Revelation ends. It teaches us that when you follow Jesus, the best is always yet to come. Amen.